It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Airhead 247 podcast. Glad to have you here with us. Before we get started, a reminder to rate and review the show. Your comments and ratings, especially on the Apple format, if you're listening there, will help ensure the program will continue. They're also a valuable source of feedback, so be sure to leave a review and rating if you're so inclined. As noted last time, Dwayne Ausherman has a rich history with airheads, especially the Slash 5 series of bikes. Be sure to put some eyes on his website. There is a wealth of information there, including service bulletins and other things you'll find both entertaining and informative. I'm sure of that. We've provided a link in the description of this program to help get you there. Let's get back to it. It's part two of our chat with Dwayne Ausherman on the Airhead 247 podcast. Um you mentioned a couple other things uh, that you sort of had to discover fixes on your own as a dealer uh, that BMW really wasn't much help on. Uh, if I recall, I'm going by memory here. I, this, I know this is one I wanted to talk about, but another one, uh, if I'm not mistaken, had to do with the uh, flywheel uh, fitting correctly uh, in, in the, uh, by the crankshaft. Oh, the grabby clutch. Yes. That was caused because they didn't shim the shafts. There's three shafts in the transmission. They didn't shim them correctly. And the shafts would move. And when the shaft moved, that engaged the clutch. Interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking about one. I'm I'm thinking about one where I read where you actually were taking off the flywheels though, because they weren't seating properly. Uh, they weren't seating right, and I guess they either had to be ground down a little bit uh, or or something along those lines. I can't remember if it was that that might have been causing uh, the rear main seals to fail prematurely, or am I off base there? No, no, you're right, except that I've forgotten. I, I really, see, this is 50 years ago. I yeah. forgot a lot of it. <laughs> I understand. If you, had met, if you had mentioned that ahead, I would have done some research on it. I would have come up with an answer, but I really don't remember. That's okay. I just remember there, there was an issue. Yeah. But the grabby clutch was caused. So the solution, what, what I did was I removed the, I had a transmission with a, you, you know those two things that stick out where the clutch arm attaches? Indeed, yes. When you, okay, well, I had one of those where that, that clutch arm broke. Or that clutch, those, those things that stick out. 
So I had, I took it, I lapped, I hand lapped the front surface of that cover, that's the rear cover of the BMW motorcycle transmission, and I took it to a machine shop, and I had them precision grind off the back cover to an exact depth. Yeah. And that was so, then I took a piece of sandpaper, and I sanded out the holes slightly so it would easily slide down on the bearings. Then we would use a depth micrometer to measure how deep it took, and we would, I, would, I bought a whole bunch of extra shims. BMW had shims for this, but they didn't do it right. They didn't do it enough. They, so I would use their shims to shim it up correctly so the shaft wouldn't move. Now, were you reporting, uh, obviously, the great story you told about the, the forks and the front end there, were, were you, uh, did you, in essence, sort of become a stateside troubleshooter for them? Were you reporting a lot of these things, and did they have, did BMW have receptive uh, ears to it? No, they didn't. First of all, when BMW North America took over, it was slightly better, but still it was, had a problem because they put a man in charge of it who, I forget his name, he was a Frenchman, and he had performed very well with the BMW car. He knew nothing about Bailby, Pierre Bailby. That was his name. And he wouldn't listen because he knew nothing about motorcycles in the first place. Wow. What what idiot appointed a car person? <laughs> of course. Of course he did a good job in Europe with the cars. That's great. Yeah. But these are motorcycles. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a totally different ballgame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so basically, it got to the point where I would share this information with a handful of shops that respected me and worked with me, and otherwise, I had given up by that point of trying to correct anything. Yeah, yeah, I I, I can understand that. Was was uh, some of that frustration part of your decision that you were ready? Uh, not long after that, I guess it was, what, 75 or so that uh, you decided to, to sell the dealership? That wasn't related. The reason I sold the dealership was because I could see I have I have all the, the – you sent me that thing with the question. Yeah, yeah. And so I, 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 I uh, wrote out a lot of answers. Yeah, please. And, oh, that one, I'm selling the dealership. You ask it as a difficult decision. It wasn't at all because I could see that the economy was going to crash. And I had reached my economic goal. I sold the, the shop. I sold the franchise. And that essentially made me financially independent. I was 33 years old, and I had enough money. I would never have to work again in my whole life. Wow. But I'm a workaholic. What it meant was I could work for free or for money, and I've done both. And what what year was it that that you sold it? I think it was early nineteen seventy five. Okay, so the R ninety S had had just come out uh, there recently. Yeah. 
Um, what were what were your? I'm curious then to know what were your impressions and or uh, any issues you noticed with those bikes? Had the quality control uh, improved uh, from the factory on on some of those things by the time you saw the the 90s uh, and the later slash six series? No. The standing rule is very simple. Never buy the first year of a new model. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Buy the last year. Yeah. Because they probably figured it out. The R90S was really a wonderful motorcycle, but it handled badly because the, the, uh, the front discs were... They didn't have the holes in them to lighten them up, and the thing sort of trundled down the road. The thing, it just didn't feel right, and so their first year was not a good one at all. And later they figured it out and they improved it. It was it ended up being a very nice motorcycle. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, and I'm sure we could talk a little bit more about that, but I'm interested to move along the timeline here. So after selling uh, the dealership. Uh, you were, as you mentioned, financially independent. Uh, you sort of had, um, I guess you could say, the world uh, in front of you, uh, making the choices, doing what you wanted to do. Uh, was it sometime there uh, after that you ended up meeting and working with Craig uh, Vetter? Yes. How? Um, first off, I, I, I just want to ask, how did you guys meet? When he came out with the Windjammer fairing, for the first two years, I was his top seller in the United States. It wasn't after that they had other dealers that sold more. But you see, he had a special deal. If you bought 50, you got a discount and free shipping. Oh, okay. So I would buy uh, so many white, so many black. I would order all kinds of mounting kits. I would order kits for the Kawasaki, kits for the BMW, kits for the Honda, and I'd have a wide variety. Now, because I purchased them, I only had $150 of each one, and if you were going to order one from Craig Vetter, you were going to wait months, and you are going to pay an extra $100. So I had dealers coming to me, I've sold as many as five in one day because I would sell it to the dealer for the same price they would pay Craig Vetter, except they didn't have to wait. Yeah. So, so you. I, so that's how I. That's how I sold so many. I would never order under fifty. In fact, as soon as I ordered fifty, and they arrived, I would order another fifty. So you were a, a, ostensibly uh, a, a retail shop for for Vetter fairings, and well, and a wholesale shop, I guess, too, for some yes. dealers. Yes. Uh, yes. So I made even selling to my competition, which mostly they weren't they weren't BMW people. They were Honda, Kawasaki, whatever. They weren't my competition. I would make the money that Craig Vetter would have made if they had bought one. Wow. Did he also have at that time, uh, I, I, let me just say parenthetically, I, I had a windjammer fairing that came on that 
slash five I had. And for me, you know, gosh, that was about 25 years ago when I owned that bike. But, you know, I will say it had it had its time and place. I did a, a couple long distance cross country trips uh, on that bike and having the fairing on there uh, really made it a lot more comfortable and palatable. And, you know, it really wasn't that difficult, uh, you know, to take on and off and pop your headlight back on, bend the uh, turn signal stocks back down, hope they don't break. And, you know, there you are, you're back with an unfairing un uh, bike. Um, but did he, I'm curious though, were there other parts and accessories uh, in addition to uh, the, the fairing? It seems like I remember there were some fenders and some other things that he was also selling around that time that went along with the, with the BMWs. Well, the best thing that he sold other than the fairing was the hippo hands. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, yeah, I knew there was some other um, stuff. So, so okay. So, I, getting back to the story there. So, you were, uh, as I said, ostensibly one of the larger wholesale and retail dealers for better products. Yeah. Uh, you were buying a lot, selling a lot. Uh, eventually, I guess that uh, uh, somehow transpired into the two of you meeting. Yes. Now, um, his wife today, before they were married, she rode her, her, I think it was a BMW. It doesn't matter. She rode her motorcycle out to the West Coast, and she was stopping at different dealers along the way. And she was made a big point of, oh, a funny thing happened on the way. But anyway, don't let me forget that. So she's uh, she's going to visit Dwayne's shop or BMW Marin because we sold so many fairings. So uh, crossing the bridge from Richmond to San Rafael, where the shop was, on the bridge was a Volkswagen van that pulled up alongside of her, and some young woman in in the back of the van as a passenger lifted up her her t-shirt and her bra and smashed her bare breast against the window <laughs> and and see they they assumed that Carol Vetter was a man she's, she's, she's wearing a leather jacket so Carol reached down and lifted her jacket up. <laughs> and, and she said they were laughing so hard she thought they were going to crash the van. <laughs> that's a great story. Huh? <laughs> yes, that's so true. <laughs> anyway, so when she, when she arrived at the shop, she was shocked. She had no idea that a place so little could sell so many fairings. And of course, we're still friends today. Very good friends. Yeah, yeah. So that that was the initial meeting. Uh, you also went on to um, work with him. Uh, I guess, if, if I'm remembering this correctly, I mean, I think did you did you relocate or sort of go up, spent some time at his house, and worked pretty uh, extensively with him on what was known as the Mystery Ship uh, Project. Yes, he moved to California. He moved to his factory, a lot of it to California, because he found out the weather was better. He didn't know that. And he, 
he came out and went, oh. So he bought a big warehouse and they converted it. And um, he asked me to, at that point, I didn't work for him. I, I first I first met him there. I had tried to visit him one time, but I crashed the motorcycle, ended up in the hospital huh. uh, back east, and they shipped me home, kind of bandaged up. But anyway, so um, at some point, Craig, when he he finally sold it off, he finally sold Windjammer totally. He sold it to a crook who actually went to jail for income tax evasion. Mm. Uh, John Bonet, he bought it. And um, so at that point, Craig retired to a nice place in San Luis Obispo. And um, he asked me, he had a, a workshop still. He asked me to come and work for him and manage his shop. And they were going to make the, the, um, the sidecar that leaned with the bike. Oh yeah. They ended up not. They ended up not doing that. I think he made a few and realized there was a liability. Something I don't remember. But anyway, I worked in his shop and we became very good friends and still are today, even though he's now brain damaged. Um, but you see, there's something that neither of us knew back then. We both are on the spectrum for autism. We have what used to be called Asperger's. Okay. And generally speaking, two people with Asperger's become instant friends, even though neither one of them knows they have it. I didn't find out until I was 62 that I had autism. I, I had this, and it's the reason my life has been so successful, because I saw everything differently than everybody else. Yeah, yeah. I saw, I, I saw opportunities where nobody else thought it possible. So... Anyway, um, I bought a small trailer and parked it off on the side near his his main office, and um, I lived there for quite some time uh, working with projects he was on. The mystery ship was one, and I thought they made seven, but turns out they made ten of them, and he first tried BMW. Well, he made a mistake. He thought he was so important to, to the world that he wanted to build it on a BMW. He wanted the mystery ship to be a BMW, and they wouldn't give him BMWs. He wanted them free. <laughs> <laughs> so he went, he went to Kawasaki, and they were happy to give them to him free. So the mystery ship ended up being built on the, Kawas the first cylinder of Kawasaki. And for those who don't know, of course, you can read a little bit more about it on your website. But what was the the mystery ship uh, concept? It was a, a fully fared motorcycle where you lean over quite a bit. You, you lean forwards. It was a, not an upright sitting like the Windjammer had been. And it was a very sexy-looking motorcycle. And... He knew it would be successful because his ego was such that he assumed that anything he made would be bought in huge numbers. Turned out not to be the case. <laughs> Did that predate BMW's uh, RS? 
I can't. I have to think about that. I don't know offhand. Yeah, so, I mean, if the RS came out in 76, late 76, early 77, uh, as a fully fared bike, yeah, I'm just wondering if, if that um, <clears throat> predated that or was, you know, might have been a response to it. Um, yep. I, I, I'd, have to, I'd have to think about that. I, I'm not sure. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike, and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. So, you know, Craig Vetter, uh, oh, let me, let me also mention uh, on, on your website, there's a couple uh, neat photos uh, of the house you mentioned up there in the, in the hills. Um, and <clears throat> I encourage people to check that out because it just, you know, it kind of gives you an idea of, you know, that time in America, how the culture was, the style, uh, and, and those sort of things. I mean, it was, a, it was a different time back then, decidedly. And just looking at some of those pictures uh, of the of his house, and I think there's a few of the the workshop and uh, and things like that. It's it's worth going to look uh, on your website. Um, yes, you you mentioned uh, also on your page, you know, Craig was an innovator, um, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, in addition to what he did with the wind jammer and uh, his you know pushing the envelope with things like the mystery ship project. Uh, I also always really loved what he had done uh, with Triumph uh, on the, uh, was it the Hurricane? The orange and... Yeah, uh, the yeah that was, yes. what yes. a, what, that's one of the greatest uh, designs, uh, sort of aftermarket design. Well, that was, let me rephrase that. That's not an aftermarket. He actually, I guess, worked with Triumph on that. And I'm not going to grill you on that, but I, just, yeah. to, just to say... One of the coolest looking uh, designs uh, of that era on a motorcycle, I think. Yes, it was, it was a beautiful design. It's too bad it wasn't on a motorcycle that would run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an important caveat there, isn't it? But talk, talk, talk to me a little bit about uh, Craig's legacy in the motorcycle industry. Okay, first let me go back on this, the Triumph. Yeah, yeah. Back in those in those days, we had... BMWs were unusual, and most people were riding either a Harley-Davidson, which was a complete piece of junk, or they were riding a British bike, which was equally a piece of junk, but they were kind of sexier, and they were they were faster when they worked. 
But the reason that they were no good was because of competition. There wasn't any. The sun never set on the British Empire. Remember that? That's right. And so all of those countries had to spend their British pounds, and the only way they could do it was by buying British bikes. So there was no competition to make them good. They could sell those piece of junks, bikes, regardless. That's what happened. Yeah. That was why they never improved. Yeah, and then and then Honda and the Japanese came out and you know had their lunch. Yes. Well, then uh, later on, Harley Davidson was in deep debt and couldn't pay their loan to the bank, and the bank went to Craig Vettis, not public proper public information. They went to Craig Vetter and said, we will give you Harley Davidson because we, we are convinced that you will improve it, make it work, and you'll be able to pay off the loans that they have. Wow. But he, he said, no, because I'm selling my company already. I want out of the business. I'm tired of being in business. So no, thank you. Wow. Interesting. So he was, uh, now, and you know who bought Harley? Yeah, it was AMF. Well, it was the employees that bought it. Oh, oh. AMF, AMF may have owned it for a short time, but they didn't. They couldn't. I don't think they can make it work either. I got you. Yeah, no, you're you're right. Yeah, so that was yeah, and you're so you're talking about around like 1982 or something when Harley yeah. bought got bought back by the uh, company and employees. Yeah, okay. And they. Because they worked in the factory, they knew all the problems that they were never allowed to correct. Yeah, that's right. Harley became a good motorcycle after that. It did. It sure did. It sure did. Yeah, in fact, I had uh, for a while, uh, I had a 1982 Sportster. Um, I didn't keep it too terribly long, but uh, it... I. It wasn't a bad motorcycle, considering what it was, and I always thought yes. I always thought that uh, because that was the quote unquote buyback year that uh, there was initial incentive, and people who were working in the factory really had uh, some skin in the game, so to speak, to make sure that those motorcycles were built uh, to better standards than they had been in the past, but. Getting back, exactly. yeah, but getting back to Craig, I mean, like I said, you know, he he had a big influence on the motorcycle, on on the industry, on the business, how people did business, on the design, uh, and the design aspects uh, in a number of different areas. I, I don't think that that can be uh, overlooked. It can't, not even slightly. Craig was a genius, and. He saw, like me, he saw things differently. He saw them in a way that no one else imagined, and that's how he came up with all these products and improvements. He's the one who made touring seem reasonable. Before that, there wasn't a good fairing. You could not buy a good fairing. They didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even really thought about it like that. All right, Dwayne, so I'm going to start wrapping things up here with uh, a couple questions. A few of these are ones that we ask uh, all the folks who appear on the program. And 
So I'll be curious to get your answers uh, on this. Uh, first off, um, you know, we didn't really talk about this beyond what you had uh, from when you first moved to California with the Slash 2 and also the VW conversion bike. But I'm just curious, over the years, uh, what were some of the other, you know, BMWs and some of the other airheads that, that you owned that you liked? Uh, I wrote down two here. I've, I've answered your question. I like the uh, short wheelbase R75 slash 5. Mm -hmm. And after the first year of the R90S, I liked those. They were really a nice motorcycle. I even liked them better than the R100S. Really? How come? I, well, I wish I could remember. <laughs> I don't remember why. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I'll tell you this. I mean, one thing, you know, I've got a, I own a, uh, an R90S, a 75, and then I've got a 78 RS. And, you know, to the com, you know, the common eye, somebody who might not know better, you know, the engines look the same. Of course, the carburetors are a little bit different, um, but they do have distinctively different characteristics when it comes to riding and, you know, how they handle. And that's for obvious reasons. The 90S and the, and the R100S, uh, I think are a more direct comparison, but I guess what I would say is, you know, the Delorto carburetors were one big difference with the 90S. You definitely had with the accelerator pumps, uh, a little more, uh, seat of the pants, uh, horsepower, so to speak. And the R100, uh, with the larger stroke, uh, the 40 millimeter bings, it, in my experience on riding those, it, it just took, uh, they were just, I don't want to say more slow or more sluggish, but it just took a little bit more while, a little longer to build up peak horsepower, uh, maybe on a, on a R100 than it did on a R90S. But once you got it up there, uh, it was, a, in my opinion, it, I, I preferred the, the upper ranges and the higher gears on a, on a R100 than I do uh, on, a, on a 90S. That's just my personal take. Yes, there's another factor that happened and it's caused by the government. The very first year of the R100S had a lot more horsepower than the next two or three years. That's right. Because the government came in and said they had to make some changes related to pollution. So you definitely want the first year. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um so, yeah, okay, so the 90S, uh, the uh, Slash 5 uh, short wheelbase you mentioned, are there some other airheads that you're particularly uh, fond of? Maybe even you might not have owned it, but maybe just from a, a design style or, you know, something along those lines. No, not really. Um, I, I didn't write stock BMWs. I always put together, I would take parts, leftover stuff, and I would make my own bike. I would take the things I liked best and make a motorcycle. So I didn't ride anything that was that you could buy. So what was the, uh, so of those then, I guess, uh, so did you, for instance, did you put to get, did you put together a bike that had, you know, maybe a R100 engine with a different cam on it and it's a different front end or how, how did that, how did that come about then? 
Well, no, what I, I, I use a 750 because um, the 750 has more ability to, to fly than my riding ability is to <laughs> use it. Fair enough. I understand. I, I, I understood that I really was a mediocre rider. And so why would I want more horsepower? What's it going to do? It's going to kill me. <laughs> so the bike I built had a, was a 750, and it had, um, I don't even remember now, but it was nothing on it was stock. It was all put together from other parts I liked. And when it came time to liquidate, I sold it in parts because it was worth mm. far more as all BMWs are, we're far more in parts than it is together. Sure, sure. That makes sense. That ma so what was the, do you, do you recall the last uh, airhead or last uh, motorcycle you owned? Well, it was basically a slash five. It had some slash six parts on it. Uh, that, you mean a special? Oh, I, I never owned any of the stock bikes. Ever. No, no, yeah, I, I get you. I'm just wondering what the last motorcycle motorcycle you had, you know, that you eventually sold off. Um, you know, what was that? Well, that was the one I had sold off in parts, the one I put yeah. together myself. Okay, all right. And how long? How, so I couldn't, I couldn't call it an R anything. In fact, <laughs> what what told me that I had to quit was I rode it from the Bay Area up to. Uh, near Sacramento to a BMW convention. And on the way there, my riding skills were so poor that one time I had to accelerate to finally get to the corner. I had overbraked too no. early. And by the time I got home, I went, I'm done. I have to quit riding. I'm no longer safe. Wow. Well, good for you for realizing that. A lot of, a lot of people uh, that would just slip right past them. And they wouldn't take note of that. Um, well, I, I didn't ride to go somewhere. I always rode because it was fun. Yeah. Yep. Well, as most of us do, uh, as most of us do, I want to ask you, Dwayne, given your experience, and this is probably going to be particular to your era when you were with the bikes, um, especially the slash five and slash six series. And of course we talked about the wobble, the, the, uh, Problems with the early carburetors, uh, you know, those might have been, as you said, some of that might have been supplier issues. I'm wondering if there was one sort of design change <clears throat> in the in the Airhead run, maybe particular uh, to your era again, that if you could go back in time and and could have changed significantly, what what might that have been? Well, I have that question here. It's the last one on the list. That's right. And what I've written, what I've written, my answers are all in red, and your questions are all in black. Okay, good. And the the answer to that one is I don't have an answer. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I'll... See, first, first, you you extended the years to ninety five. I'd quit writing long before that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I even in the last up until a year or two ago. I would test ride motors and BMWs for people to diagnose them. I happen to be, I would say my greatest ability is in diagnosing issues. So there are many times when several times a year, somebody would bring me a BMW that 
something was not right, and I would write it at a time of day where there was nobody around much, you know, on, so I can play with it. I can test things. Yeah. And I, I would probably ride five miles, two, three miles out and two, three miles back, and I would tell them what the problem was. And I liked doing that. That was probably my my biggest skill. Yeah. And that's, you know, diagnosis is often the hardest part of problem solving, from trying to figure yes. out exactly where you need to start and where you need to go. So, okay, well, that's a fair enough uh, answer to the question. I mean, I, just for conversational purposes, I'll tell you, you know, some of the answers I've heard, um, and this extends throughout the model range or the year range as, as, um, as we know was, you know, of course, some people will mention the circlip uh, being deleted and the transmissions in the later models. Uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, more adequate charging systems. Uh, the one thing I was surprised by uh, and that I've heard recently from a couple guys uh, is just this, the center and side stands on how poorly <laughs> those were designed, how unuser friendly they were. I, you know, having ridden these bikes for a number of years, I've just kind of gotten used to it. Um, but you know, that's another thing that, you know, I never really thought about, but you know, the whole idea of the self retracting side stand and sometimes with later bikes getting, um, you know, if you're shorter stature, shorter of stature or, uh, have a heavily, a bike heavily packed down, it can be difficult to get it up on, on the center stand. Um, you know, those are just, Oh, wait a minute. There's, there's much more to this. Okay. That self-retracting side stand. Yes. That was the way it came. It, you, all you had to do is loosen the bolt and let that little, that little plate rotate and the side stand didn't retract. That's right. And you could adjust it. You could adjust it whatever way you wanted it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the, the center stand, why do you think the Reynolds write-off stand was so popular? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they didn't wreck the frame. The, the original stand, people didn't know how to use them. They would lift the, the bike up and let it fly back and hit the stops. You can't do that because it wrecks the frame. Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. <clears throat> it's their own fault. <laughs> <laughs> you have to know how to use it properly. You know, that I'm glad you mentioned yeah. that about, you know, loosening the bolt. Put, put, putting the side stand out and then tightening it again uh, by moving that plate. Uh, I guess that's uh, that's something I've done uh, on a couple bikes. You know, I eventually, uh, you know, just went with the brown side stand. I, I prefer the stability on those uh, for a number of different reasons. But anyway, yeah, that's a, a neat bit of uh, information there on the center stand. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot. But I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 
bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Well, look, Dwayne, I want to just mention once again uh, your website. There's a lot more uh, stuff on here that we didn't cover. Uh, some of your personal history and s- some background about living in Ohio, uh, living in Cleveland, some uh, a lot of great tech information uh, on there as well, which we discussed a little bit here today. And, and again, the website address is w6rec.com. And before we go, I just have to ask you, what's the significance of the web address? Oh, that's my ham radio call sign. That's what I thought. That's exactly what I thought. Yep. Yeah. And uh, see, there's this farm. My life has not just been BMW. That that's a small part of my life. That's exactly right. It's exactly I right. I lived in Antarctica. How many people do you know that lived in Antarctica? <laughs> Nobody. Uh, and I also was a I was an excellent pool player. I was a coach to the United States National Championship Women's Eight Ball Team. I coached them to two national championships. I've done all kinds of things in my life. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, it's a it's a life uh, well lived, uh, and many more years uh, hopefully ahead for you. And as I mentioned, all that and more is available on the website. I encourage folks to go check that out. Uh, there's some great reading yeah. there and some some fun things. And you know, I'm down in Texas now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you 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 had mentioned I that. Just, I just received a few days ago. I received my. LTC, my license to carry. It's a special uh, license to carry a concealed weapon, and I can carry all the weapons I can conceal. <laughs> uh, and Texas is it? You, it, we have constitutional carry. You don't have to have this license, but there's many, many places you can't go without this permit that I have. So it's um, it was a lot of work, and and it's expensive and. But it's a, a wonderful permit. And by the way, I'm a pacifist. I'm, I challenged the draft law in the first place and blew it out of the water many years earlier when I was 20 or 21. And the government was very unhappy. The FBI followed me for two years because I embarrassed them so badly because I proved that their laws were not right. They, by, that, by that, I mean they, weren't, they, didn't even, they had false stuff on the draft card. It was a lie. <laughs> anyway, so while I'm a pacifist, I carry a weapon because there are some people who aren't. That's true. That's very true. And uh, Texas is a, is a proudly independent state. I visit there quite frequently. I go. I enjoy going down to Big Bend uh, National Park, uh, going down to Terlingua, 
uh, and sort of that area of, uh, of the state. I've got a lot of friends that live down there, and I know everybody who lives in Texas. Uh, Texas pride is something unique among the 50 states, no doubt. Yes, yes. And, oh, by the way, did you know it's legal in Texas for a woman to go topless? <laughs> I, no. I've never seen it, but it's legal. It, it's the law. It's it's legal. Okay. Uh, uh, among many, and you know the the horrible shooting at that school in Texas uh, in Uvalde. Yes, Uvalde. Yes, Uvalde. Are are you have you followed that? I to to a degree, I have. Yes. Well, it turns out that all of the laws were in place to prevent it. Nobody did their job. Yeah. No new legislation needs to be passed. They just have to use what's already there. Yeah, that was a terrible tragedy. No doubt about it. Yes, it's horrible. horrible. No. I wish I'd been there. Yeah. Well, hey, you would have, you you would have uh, you would have had your concealed carry. You could have gone in. I would have because I'm old. <laughs> I, if I could die, if I could take that out, that guy out and die, it'd been worth it. I'm that's, old. I'm not going to live long anyway. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good point. You know what? You bring up an interesting thought. There is that uh, maybe we do need uh, maybe the uh, the senior uh, citizens patrol um, with some with folks like that who have that sort of mindset. Just give them hell. Well, I'm I'm go. I'm going to go out giving them hell. Yes, well, one, we're not allowed, even with me, with my concealed carry, I'm not allowed to carry in a school. Well, of course, that's exactly what the problem is. <laughs> the schools need to have teachers and, and janitors that are armed. Yeah. That's well, how that guy got away with it, because, the, and the cops waited a whole hour before they went in. They're, they're cowards. Yeah, that was, that's the worst part of the story, no doubt. Uh, yes, the whole thing Every part was horrible. It was just a totally useless tragedy. He shouldn't have had the gun. His own grandfather was a felon. There were no guns allowed in the house. So the kid that bought the gun, that was illegal. It goes on and on. There's, there's no there's no stopping. In fact, he said if he had known, he would have called the police because he knew the kid was unbalanced. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I just, you know, you read about the whole thing, and you just go shake your head. Yeah, that's all. That's all you can do, right? Yes. <clears throat> well, well, look, Dwayne, I, I have to say, I'm really glad you took some time uh, to visit with me today on this. Uh, I, I, I know folks are going to enjoy hearing uh, your stories and memories. Uh, we covered a lot of great stuff, uh, a lot of great BMW. Well, you, you can edit it. You know, I expect you to edit out half of it at least. No, 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 not uh, half of it. Not half of it at all. Um, we'll edit out. Now, will you? Will, will the public be able to see this if they want? So, yeah. So what we'll do is, well, uh, yeah, yeah, so let me clear this up. So essentially, you know, obviously, you know, this is just audio only. So we're just talking on the phone. Right. And so what we'll do is we will edit this a little bit. And when I say edit it, I mean, of course, the conversation we're having now won't be on there. But uh, right, we'll, we'll edit, you know, maybe some of the longer pauses or if I stumbled over a word or you stumbled over a word or something like sure. that. Sure. We'll just clear, do that for clarity. Uh, then we'll put the whole thing uh, together, mix and master it. And then it's released as a podcast. 
And so what that is, it's just the, just the, the edited audio uh, of our conversation, and that is distributed through uh, a number of different providers. So Apple Computers, uh, they have a podcast service that we upload these to, and it's distributed through there. There's another audio provider called Spotify that's really popular. We'll send the file there. Uh, Google, uh, you know, the web search, uh, web engine search, they also have a podcast audio distribution service, and we uh, also distribute it through there. And so <clears throat> that's how folks um, know about it. I also advertise it a little bit on, you know, motorcycle, BMW forums. Uh, and so that's how people listen to it. And I've been doing this since uh, the first one came out in March of this year. And we average about uh, a thousand or about, uh, let me rephrase that. We average about 2000 folks each month that listen to it. So we put out two episodes each month. Uh, so it averages about 2000 listeners a month, a month, which is pretty good knowing that they're all specifically airhead BMW enthusiasts. Yes. Now, um, you can send me that link because friends of mine want to hear it. I will. A hundred percent. I sure will. And I'll tell you, it will probably, probably be November or December, uh, until this, uh, particular, until our conversation will air. Uh, because I've done a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, number, a number of different interviews with a lot of folks. Uh, for instance, we've got Bob Hennig from Bob's uh, BMW coming up. Um, I've interviewed William Plam from Boxer Two Valve. Uh, you know, we had. Uh, I'm trying to think who else. I don't have the list in front of me, but yeah, we've got some fun and interesting folks. And uh, I'm 100%, Dwayne. I'll be sure to send you the uh, link when it's ready. Um, probably, as I said, it'll probably be, you know, November, December or something like that. And, yeah. and so, yeah, you can share it with your friends and family and maybe, uh, put up a, a link to it on, on your webpage. Sure. Now you mentioned Google. Yeah. I hope you don't use Google. Well, not really. No. I mean, for, for our purposes, uh, they, they're just another distributor for the, for these little right. audio right. programs. So yeah. no, I, I don't a whole you probably use DuckDuckGo like most of my friends. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yep. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar. All right, well, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, so that's it's all good news. And, uh, oh, by the way, Bob's BMW, they ended up with one of the brand new, um, the Italian bikes. Were you aware of the 200 and some Italian bikes that came here? No, no. What's, what's the story behind that? Oh, the Italian distributor went broke. They went bankrupt, and B, this is in 1974. Okay. And BMW went went back in and repossessed all the motorcycles. There was about I don't know, I forget the number. Over 200. Wow. They sent them to the United States, and they were all slash fives, but they're already old. The, the slash sixes are already out. So when when uh, I don't remember. Oh, BMW hated me because I would not get a floor plan. When uh, you get a, do you know where a floor plan is? I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, but maybe describe it for folks who don't. Well, a floor plan is um, where they give it to you for free for two or three, four months, 
And if you haven't sold it by that time, it goes on your bank record. You, the bank pays you for it, so you, it encourages you to sell it. Well, I refused to ever take a floor plan because I always paid cash for everything. I got a 1.5% discount. Why wouldn't I pay cash? So BMW hated me. Well, when they got these 200 and some Italian bikes, they're calling up and, and they, they, it was Matt Capri, the rat. We called him the rat. <laughs> Matt the rat. Um, Matt the rat. Yeah, he was an awful person. He was a liar. He was, uh, I could go on. Anyway, he said, we have reserved two of them for you. What he's really saying is, we hope you'll take two. <laughs> right. Well, the, they were the last of the size size. They were the, that was the model to own. They were wonderful. Yeah. And he told me the, the price was way under what we paid for them the year before. And so I offhandedly said, wow, at that price, I'd take 20. He didn't say a word. He went back to those people and said, we're, we're sending 20 to Dwayne. And what's going to happen is he's going to have to go on a floor plan. Well, Butler and Smith had one employee named Eddie. He hated him. He hated Butler and Smith because they were crooks. So he called me up that evening and he says, Dwayne, they're just clapping with joy because they know that you're going to have to go on a floor plan. I said, Eddie, keep your head down and just listen. <laughs> I said, I could have paid, I could pay cash for 40 of them if I wanted. It would only take me 24 hours to liquidate. I said, I've got the cash to pay for 20 right now. He, he said, oh, good. He said, I'm so glad because they're just they're just so happy that they got you over a barrel. So <laughs> when they received the check in the mail for the whole 20, <laughs> he said they were so pissed. I said, did they wonder if the check was good? He said, he said no, they knew your check was good. <laughs> <laughs> You didn't ever hear about the Italian bike? No, no. Well, what's Bob's connection to that? Well, one of them, I kept two or three. I gave, what am I trying to, I'm trying to remember what I, I kept two or three for myself. I gave one to, or sold it for almost nothing to, um, the, the wife of a very good friend of 50 years. We're still very good friends, although he's suffering dementia now. He was the manager of my motorcycle store back then. And she bought it to give to him as a present. And uh, he eventually, he didn't even take it out of the crate. He left it in the crate. He eventually, but he didn't, turned out he, I don't remember why, he sold it to Bob's. Huh. So Bob's got a brand brand new one. I Last I heard, it was still there in his museum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, you know, we did. I've we, he and I talked for a long time, uh, like you and I have for about two or three hours. And um, <clears throat> no, he didn't mention that. But I'm I'm curious though, since you brought that up, what? How did they? Did they re? They had European serial numbers on them, so did they have to restamp them, or what? What was the deal? What they did was they would slice a little hole in the crate. The crate has plastic wrapped around it. And they would drop in the correct mirrors, the correct, three or four or five things it took to make it legal in the United States. Right, right. Okay, interesting. But they still retain the uh, Euro uh, serial number. Yes. Yeah. And I had, by the time they arrived, I had, see, they didn't tell me they were shipping them, but I knew they would. 
And I had made space in the shop. I already had sold several of them. They were already sold before they even got there. <laughs> wow. So wow. Um, I just love sticking it to Butler and Phil. <laughs> I do so much fun. Well, and like I'm you... I'm sure you... No, I was just going to say, and like you said, those those were great bikes. The that, that's a great point. The last of the Slash Five series, every you know, most everything had gotten ironed out. Yes, I'm sure you've heard that the, the none of the dealers like Butler and Smith at all. That's uh, yeah, uh, that's that's pretty much a lot of the the commentary I've gotten from a number of different folks who had to deal with them. Yeah. They were liars. They were crooks. They, I can't even. I can't even. Tell you. It's on my web. One of my web pages. They locked me in a room at one of the dealers' meetings, and they happened to make the mistake of having two or three factory people from Germany, and they said, "We're very upset with you because you haven't turned in any warranty claims. You went a whole year and you didn't turn in any warranty claims." And. I said, well, did you, you are required by federal law, if there's a complaint, you have to inform me of it. Did you, how many did you get? They said, we didn't get any. I said, that's because I fixed everything (laughs) and never sent in a claim. I said, because you gave me $4 an hour for warranty work and you, the previous year, you declined 75% of them. That meant I was getting a dollar an hour for filling out the paperwork. Good grief. So I, I said, I stopped doing it. And here, guess what? That, I, I couldn't believe it. I had him by the balls. They said, well, how in the world is the factory supposed to know what's going wrong? I said, well, when I complained, you told me to fill it out for the things they were paying for. So how in the world is the factory supposed to know that? <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so finally, they, they, the, the meeting ended after 30 minutes or so. And one of the factory guys from Germany, his English was perfect, he follows me into the restroom. He said, it was all we could do to keep from cracking up because we knew everything you said. We were completely aware of all of it. And you just confirmed it for us. And you, he said, you really shoved it to him. I said, good for you. And there, I don't know how related it was, but their, their agreement was stopped and BMW North America took over directly from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Wow. <clears throat> that, uh, and you know, I mean, North, but when BMW NA took over, I mean, that was a, that had to have been a better situation for the dealers re- regardless. No, uh, no, not really. Not initially because they, I, I think I told you they hired Pierre Bailby. Oh yeah, that's right. Who had done wonders for the cars. And he didn't know what he was doing. So for the, eventually they retired him out and, and moved somebody in who knew what they were doing. And um, that's when things straightened up. Yeah, yeah. Wow. No, that's an interesting... I can't remember his name. I, 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 I got his name on the tip of my tongue who took over. But anyway, the, the point is that um, it was a, a rough start for BMW and Well, you had to have some smarts. You had to have... Uh, a few tricks up your sleeve and definitely had to be able to put up with some BS, uh, it sounds like, to oh. to make a go of it. Oh, all the time. Yeah. 
Well, my customers were a hundred times better than the people that loved me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, had they not had, you know, if, had they not had such a good product, uh, despite its occasional foibles and whatnot, it probably would have been a lot different story. But, well, look, buddy, I have to say it's been a real pleasure visiting with you. I, I really appreciate you taking the, the time today and, and sharing so much. It, it's been a wonderful conversation. Well, I've enjoyed it, too. I really have, and I hope that, the, uh, that it works out well. I hope somebody listens. I hope somebody cares. And, uh, I hope I don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, look, Duane, I'll be in touch, and you be well. Uh, thank you very much. Have a wonderful weekend. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Some amazing stories and historical anecdotes from Dwayne Ausherman the past few weeks. Be sure to reference his website, W6REC. We've provided a link to that in the description of this podcast. We've really enjoyed having Dwayne on the show the past few weeks. Thanks for joining us, everyone. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm-hmm.